Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit that fills this place, this fills our hearts. Holy Spirit, you are our comforter, you are our teacher. Take your place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you. You can close the door for me. Today, as I already mentioned, we're talking about walking through cultural fires. Walking through cultural fires. You know me. I love to preach a big God theology. Big God theology. Because when you teach a big God theology, and you see all of God's attributes, that He's sovereign, that He's supreme, that He's eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, the aseity of God, that He's self-generated for life. He depends on no one. He's not codependent. He's 100% completely independent, and He has existed from eternity past to eternity future. That He's omnipresent. In other words, He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. That means He's all-powerful. That means He's all-powerful everywhere from the top of heaven to the bottom of hell. This God, our God is a holy God. There's no shadow within Him. And when you see this big God theology, you realize how far we, you have fallen short of His glory. And suddenly we realize what great need we have to be reconciled with Him in Christ. This is why people realize they need Christ. But if they hear a theology of how very great they are and how important they are and they trivialize God's greatness and the big God theology, it's almost like there's no need. There's no need for Christ to reconcile us. So you know, that's what I like to do. That's how I like to teach and preach. But because of what people are going through at this time in their lives, it is very important for me to address some of the issues. I don't want to be tone deaf. I don't want to be heartless. I don't want to be inconsiderate of you, knowing that you walk through the same things everybody else walked through. So I don't want to be tone deaf, but I'd rather address some of the issues that we are experiencing. So today I'm not speaking to our... I'm not speaking to the world. I'm speaking to our church. Our church in person and our church online. I'm not addressing Christianity at large. I'm not addressing those who identify as seekers. By the way, there are no seekers. No one seeks after God. No one, not one. Romans 3.11. I'm not addressing the regular man on the street or the general public. Just our church family, in person and online. You see, the world attempts to deceive you hourly, lie to you daily. The world attempts to pressure you constantly and shame you thoroughly psychologically force you to bow your knee to their twisted perspective of truth and this world. The world is coming at you strong. And as if that is not enough, as if that is not enough, the church has now 
joined forces with the world in what is known as culture wars and is now pressuring you to jump on the bandwagon with them. You might say, well, Jacques, what is the bandwagon? The bandwagon is social justice. The bandwagon is social justice. It is also known as critical theory. It is also known as cultural Marxism. You might also know it as identity politics. The church at large has now pushed you into all of that. The last few weeks we've seen much of this. Now, I understand that the world is acting like the world. I understand that the world reacts like it should in a fallen way. But now the church has joined forces in this cultural war and have joined sides with those who propagate the world's causes, the world's evil causes. I want to run through just a few with you just to show you how true this is. We see that the Southern Baptist Convention calls all their members in their 47,000 churches to declare Black Lives Matter. The Southern Baptist Convention calls all their members in their 47,000 churches across this country, as a matter of fact, it's 47,456 churches, to declare Black Lives Matter. We saw also last week, the week before Joel Osteen participating in Supporting Black Lives Matter. We see Christianity today, which I used to like to read, believes that repentance is no longer sufficient. It's like the first time they've preached repentance for a decade. But Christianity today believes that repentance is no longer sufficient, but reparations need to be initiated by the church at large. The church needs to initiate reparations and the way they're going to do it is they're going to start something called the Zacchaeus Fund. The Zacchaeus Fund. The Zacchaeus Fund is where Christians will sacrificially give into an account monthly. And then, of course, they will be dispersing this. Churches are jumping on this bandwagon faster than you can fall off a log. Carl Lenz, the poster boy for the Hillsong Church groups, gets very testy with Christians who do not agree with him on endorsing Black Lives Matter. I'm going to show you this video, and then I'm going to explain to you where we as a church stand on the issue of Black Lives Matter. Thank you.
quality. I uh, just want to make sure you know that Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor. Uh, it was complete. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, those who recognize their spiritual depravity and their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those. That's what he meant. But I know, I know these guys. So the question we have to ask first is where do we as a church stand on Black Lives Matter? Again, today is not for the rest of the world. Today is not for those outside of the four walls of the church. Today is not for the rest of the church. Today is for Christ's nation alone. For you who are part of our congregation, our church family here in person and online. And these are the ones I would like to speak to. Where do we stand on the issue of Black Lives Matter? Now there's a distinction. Listen to me. There is a distinction between supporting the Black Lives Matter organization and loving, supportingly black people whose lives matter. There is a distinction between supporting the Black Lives Matter organization and lovingly supporting black people whose lives matter. Surely we get that, Charles. Surely we get that. You hear what I'm saying? Lens. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there is an apprehension, and it's not regarding the truth of that statement. That statement is true. But there's a problem endorsing the 501c3 organization with the name of that statement. That we as Christians wholeheartedly disagree with. And you don't know, you don't see the deception in it. Where the the truth of the statement and the organization so deceptively were put together... And now, in order to, yeah, I believe, I, I, yeah, I stand behind the statement, but I reject the organization, is the apprehension. You follow what I'm saying? Simple. We as Christians do not agree with much of the ideology of that organization. The organization named Black Lives Matter is openly opposed to your Christian beliefs, and you can go and Google it yourself and search for it yourself. But I personally do not support Marxism. I personally do not support the defunding and the abolishing of the police. I personally do not defund, uh, you know, support the destruction and the undoing of capitalism, the very thing that they now are able to promote. Isn't it funny how you, know, you, you have the Marxist sitting at a Starbucks, at his capitalist Starbucks, on his capitalist iPhone, you know, uh, criticizing capitalism on his capitalist Facebook page, but, you know, nobody sees, nobody sees the hypocrisy in all of that. I mean, you have people with designer bags, beautiful Nikes, standing there protesting with the $800 iPhone. It just doesn't actually make sense. But, hey, who, who am I to say anything? So where do, we, where do we as a church stand on Black Lives Matter? We lovingly support black people whose lives matter, but we reject wholeheartedly the organization called Black Lives Matter. Number two. Hey, <laughs> if you're angry, pace your anger, okay? <laughs> We've got, we got a long way to go. <laughs> Number two, where do we as a church stand on the defunding or abolishing of the police? This is a big conversation raging through our culture right now. To understand our position, let me give you and revise with you 
in nutshell explanation of God's structure He developed to restrain evil in this world. God built the structure and He uses the structure to push back darkness from invading your life, your family, your community, your world. The structure is very clearly articulated in Scripture. It consists out of three portions. Number one, the family is God's divinely instituted restrainer against evil. Conscience is God's divinely orchestrated and constructed restrainer against evil. Conscience. Thirdly, government is God who sovereignly, divinely orchestrated the restrainer against evil called government. Look at the family. The implosion of the family has led to children raised with minimal discipline and correction, minimal if any, and has in part resulted in a generation of young criminals, no matter what skin tone. The Bible says if you leave a child to himself, he will become a monster. That is what naturally happens to a fallen heart. He grows up to be a monster unless he's restrained by the family, by the parents, by the family unit. Number two, conscience. The fact that our churches no longer preach God's moral law has resulted in the dismantling of the collective conscience of our society. If you don't know how conscience works, it works like this. Your conscience will accuse you or excuse you based on the highest truth it's ever been exposed to. Your conscience is constructed from the time you're a little baby. Your conscience is constructed by truth introduced to you by your world. And your conscience, it's a gift from God, will accuse you or excuse you based on the highest truth it's ever been exposed to. Now, the fact that our churches no longer preach God's moral law has resulted in the dismantling of the collective conscience. The church is no longer introduced. Their consciences are no longer constructed by God's holy and perfect law. That's no longer there. Most evangelicals now grow upon God loves you unconditionally and therefore you are unconditionally forgiven constantly. And instead of saying, go and sin no more, they are told, go and enjoy your life forever. This has created spiritual psychopaths. You know what a psychopath is? The person who has no feeling after they just murdered somebody. There's no guilt. They have no guilt at all. This has created spiritual psychopaths, churchgoers who have no feeling of guilt, no matter how sinful their life may be. They don't feel nothing. So why do you think Christians around the nation now support almost every single evil culture uh, or evil that the culture puts on their table? 
Why do they support it? I mean, you know, and I'm going somewhere, so please follow me. Check this out. You think I'm wrong? I'm proving to you that I'm right. Why is it that the church now supports almost every single cultural evil that rears its head? Because the family has been crippled, dismantled, and there's no conscience being constructed by teaching God's perfect law. It's just, oh, God loves you unconditionally, therefore you are unconditionally forgiven. Enjoy your life. No, don't feel guilty. Never feel guilt. And so we destroy our children's consciences. And we destroy God's restrainer of evil in their life. Does this make sense? You say, Jacques, it's not true. It is true. Why do you think Christians support all these evils in our culture? Same-sex marriage, supported by a large portion of Christians. Churches across the board. Pro-abortion politicians, supported by large portions of Christians across the board. Interfaith movements, supported by large portions of Christians. No conscience. Cultural Marxism. Critical theory. Who now are marching towards defunding police. Supported now by a large portion of Christian and churches. Why is that? I just told you. The family has been dismantled. The conscience has been crippled. We now see very prominent and popular Christian influencers publicly announcing their deconversion. They once were Christian and now they publicly announce they are deconverting. You have examples like Joshua Harris who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. You have Marty Sampson, lead vocalist for Hillsong, deconverted, no longer a Christian, publicly announces it. You have John Steingart, a lead singer of the Christian band, Hawk Nelson, uh, deconverting very publicly. No longer believes that there's a God or in God at all. And then you ask yourself, how do Christians respond? <laughs> how are Christians responding to this? Well, I'll tell you what I see. Okay? You too can go to these guys' Facebook pages, their Twitter feeds and so forth, and you can see how Christians respond to their public deconversions. Christians rush to their social media pages to publicly support these individuals for their bravery, for being who they are. And now suddenly... Doubt has become a virtue. Christians supporting them. My point is the truth. Churches have been preaching over the last three decades, the last 30 years, have caused the conscience of our Christian population to no longer know how to respond to evil. They don't know. They just, okay, well, let me support it. Another evil? Okay, I'll support that one too. (laughs) Haven't you been flabbergasted, completely blown away? By how Christians just jump on every bandwagon no matter how evil or no matter how unscriptural. Everything is subjective. We have a great example of subjective truth just to explain it because I'm going to be using it. Subjective truth is opposite to objective truth. Objective truth comes to you from the Word of God. Subjective truth doesn't come to you from God. No, it comes from you because of what I have experienced. You see, truth is now subject to my past experiences. 
Truth is not subject to how I feel about the situation. Well, truth is not subject to how I view the world. Well, I view it this way, therefore it has to be truth. Uh, remember Lauren Daigle? She was asked about homosexuality after the, she was on, the, on, the, um, on that one woman's show, uh, Ellen DeGeneres' show. <clears throat> she was asked, what about homosexuality, right or wrong? She says, I don't know. And you know why she said she didn't know? <clears throat> because subjective truth, subjective truth. She says, because I, my experience, subjective truth, my experience is that I have friends who, who are just such wonderful people. And that's been my experience, and I feel like they, they're just more perfect than most Christians I know. And that's how I view it. Okay, well, can you see how she came to a conclusion regarding a very important issue, but by way of subjective truth? What did she do? She made herself the arbiter. She made herself the jury. She made herself the judge as to what's right or wrong based on discovering truth subjectively. That's a very dangerous thing for us to do. Truth is never subjective. It is always objective. It comes to you from the canon of scriptures that have been closed. My point is that the truth churches have been preaching over the last three decades have caused the conscience of our Christian population to no longer know how to respond to evil, so they support it. And after breaking down God's first restraint of evil, which is what? The family. Now they've broken down, the, the church broke down the second restraint of evil, which is conscience. The third final divine restraint to wear down before anarchy breaks loose in our streets is the government, the police. And when that third restraint of evil is gone, folks, buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. Romans 13.3 tells you exactly what I'm saying. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Who are the rulers they're talking about here? Or he's talking about here, Paul? The government. For the government rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but a cause of fear for bad behavior. Huh. Fancy that. Do you want to have no fear of authority? In other words, do you have, want to have no fear of the rulers? Do what is good, and you will have praise from them instead. For it, the government, by extension the police, is a minister of God to you for good. God's ministers. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it does not bear the instrument of death, the sword, for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not into what? Subjection, yes, not only because of wrath but also for conscience' sake. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. I don't mind people reading books. I encourage people to read all the time. I, I don't mind people listening to me. I encourage you to listen all the time. Teachings after teachings. Get into the Word. Get into good teaching. Get into good preaching. Read books on different subjects. Have you ever heard anybody teach on that? Not me doesn't sell. The writing 
is obviously on the walls, folks. The writing is on the walls. This generation's rebellious hearts are filled with evil, filled with hatred, filled with violence. It is boiling over. This is our new normal, unfortunately. Every time a mistake is made by the authorities, culture will erupt in hateful vengeance. They're not calling for justice. They're calling for vengeance. What you're seeing on your screen is not justice. It's vengeance. You see, justice works towards restoring a functional balance. That's what justice does. It takes that, you know, that scale and it works towards restoring a functional balance. Vengeance, on the other hand, works towards destroying the other side of the scale. So what you're looking at, folks, is not justice. Don't let them lie to you. It's a revised word. They've changed the meaning of the word. It is vengeance. The Bible is very clear. It says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. This is not for you to do. Leave it up to me. Because the moment you do it, you become guilty of the same. That's why Jesus said, if you don't have sin, okay, go ahead. Go ahead, throw the rock. But you can't because you're not innocent. <laughs> now you have those who are guilty of sin taking justice, which is really vengeance, out on the others who are guilty of sin. God says, well, wait a minute. I'm going to take vengeance. I will take care of it. I will balance the scales. And every single crime, every single abuse, every single wrongdoing will be paid for either in Christ 2,000 years ago or in hell forever. But those scales will balance and God will make those scales balance. In Christ now or in hell forever, you decide. Okay? Folks, you don't want justice. You know that, right? You don't want justice. Because justice for me means I'm going to hell eternally. That's what I deserve. I'm a fallen human being. What I want is mercy. And Christ is God's mercy toward me. Giving me the opportunity to have what I should have paid for being paid in Christ instead. But let God do that. Amen? Are you all with me today? Christians do not participate in destroying society. Christians do not participate in destroying culture. Christians do not protest in the streets, riot, loot, and attempt to overthrow governments. They don't do, that's not what a new creature does. We are known as those who honor the king. We are known as those who honor the individuals who have authority over us. We are known as people who pray for the salvation of our leaders and pray for the salvation of our rulers. We are known as those who live quietly and peaceable lives in this world. We are known as those who are not revolutionaries. We are not activists. We are not reactionaries. We do not start riots. We do not storm the streets. We do not bang on the doors of the Supreme Court. We do not smash to pieces what others have built. Those aren't, new, those aren't new creatures in Christ. We love people. And the new generated heart loves people. 
because they were loved. Care for people because they cared for. Minister to the needs of other people. That's who we are. We accept the authority that is in power because we know that it was ordained by God. I mean, the Bible says it so clearly. God lifts one up and He pulls another down. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. I mean, you know that the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would enslave his people and refuse to let him go. God did that. We are the hearts who can believe in a sovereign God that whatever it is He is choosing will work for our good. That's, that's what makes Christianity so fantastic. <laughs> we can lay our head on the pillow of God's sovereignty every night. And we can rejoice not for all things, but in all things. We can rejoice. That's the Christian life. The rebels have broken through the first two divine restraints of evil and are currently attempting to overthrow the third divine restraint, which is government, police. When they succeed in overthrowing the third restraint is when anarchy hits our streets. So the question that we asked right there is, where do we as a church stand under funding and abolishing police. Number three. Are you guys all getting very um, built up in your faith? <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for allowing us to do this. This is our family chat. Number three. What is the basis for racism? What is the basis for racism? Christ Nation believes there is no basis for racism. There is none. And here is why. Last weekend I showed you <clears throat> a video by one of my favorite Bible teachers, Vody Bauckham. I showed it to you to ensure that we have the same foundational understanding. But in order to drive this point home and in order to show you the second part that I wanted to show you, I need to revisit the two minutes that I did show last week. And I know many of you did not see this. So please go ahead. And let's see Ravodi Bakum answer what is the basis of racism. Just two things here that are incredibly important. One is it identifies the distinctions that matter. And secondly, it identifies the division that exists. Now, these distinctions that matter are important because oftentimes we talk about distinctions and we talk about being distinct from one another in terms of our race. Race is actually a social construct. The concept of race is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical idea. It is a constructed idea. You won't find the idea of races in the Bible unless you find it in the proper historical context where we see, number one, that we are all the race of Adam, Amen? One race, one blood. We are all the race of Adam. There is less than a 0.2% genetic difference between any of us in this regard. In fact, we're not even different colors. Amen? 
technically, from a genetic perspective, from a biochemistry perspective, we're all actually the same color. Our color comes from our melanin. We've all got melanin just to differing degrees. So it's not that some of us are, you know, this color, some of us are that color, some of, no, we're just different shades of the same color. Some of us just have more melanin than others, and I want you to, listen to me on this, listen to me. Just because you don't have as much melanin as I do, don't you dare think God doesn't love you as much as he loves me because he gave me more. The concept of race is not biblical. That's why we at Christ Nation believe that there's no basis for racism. The concept of race is a social construct. It is, it is a constructed idea. And all the Bible refers to is that we are part of the race of Adam. Today I would like to add to that that you just saw a more scientific approach to the exact same concept of race not being biblical, but a social construct. This is from Answers in Genesis. Thank you. I hear this one a lot. How can there be so many races in the world if we were all descendants of Adam and Eve? Well, check this out. First of all, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they can suppose races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. But are there really different races? Think again to Acts 1726, where it's written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 126-28, easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So, Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then, their children have children, and those children have children, and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6-9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark, and according to Genesis 9-19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11, and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who are descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This, of course, is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which, depending on different variables, produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So, let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin, while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together, they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. 
Here's the bigger point though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which by the way represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. So, since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who were in the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population, thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shades becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simple, but sure, but enough said. All right, let's receive the offering and go home. <laughs> Again, the concept of race is not biblical. The concept of race is a social construct. It is a constructed idea. And all the Bible refers to is that we are part of the, of the race of Adam. And today, this constructed idea of course, is only for political gain. And that is why, you know, we at Christ Nation so vehemently reject the concept of racism. We are one in Christ. There's no Jew, Greek, who, by the way, they used to be opponents. They used to be enemies, the Jews and the Greek. But Paul says there's no Jew nor Greek. There's no male, no female, there's no slave, there's no free. For you are one in Christ. How are you one? You are one body. Your heart needs your kidneys, your kidneys needs your liver. Your body needs your brain. Everything. We are one in Christ. We all need each other as God made us. But not only are we united in one body, but we are also one in standing before God, fallen and completely guilty of sin, deserving of eternal hell, every one of us. Yet, in Christ, we, we are of one standing, completely made righteous because of Christ. That's who we are, a church family. But the world wants to inject the concept of race for political gain, even though we don't see it in the Bible. But why do you think, why do you think that the church... The real church has always been extremely opposed to, let's say, abortion. Because if it wasn't for all these identity politics that were played, you know, people with darker skins wouldn't have been in the minority anymore. But if you study out Margaret Sanger, you'll understand why the church has always been for black people. That's why we are the ones that are always fighting to end abortion. Why do you think the church is always fighting against the school systems when it comes to evolution? Because in many ways, it contradicts God's standards. I mean, the theory of evolution, Darwin's theory of evolution, is the most racist document and understanding you've ever seen. 
It is utterly racist. Yet the world, is, the world has embraced it. But what I'm trying to say is, forget about the world. Why do you think the church has always fought it? Because the church has always loved and cared for and supported and freed and fought for black people. Or you might say people that have that degree of melanin in them. Because we have never seen the difference. We've always seen everybody as one. Politics. Politics is flooding into the church like never before. The fourth question that needs to be answered is who is your real family? Who is your real family? Many are suffering divisions in their family and loved ones because of the cultural disagreements that are happening today. Many disagreements. Many are told what they are supposed to feel because of the family they're in. Many are told who they are support, supposed to support because the family that they're in. They are told what, how they ought to think because of the family that they're in. But I'm so sad to tell you that Jesus completely disagrees with you. Matthew 12, 46 says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother, Jesus, Jesus' mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to see, speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, Jesus said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother, he is my sister, and my mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my family. Period. You are in God's family, and those who do God's word is really who you belong with. Number five. Did Jesus come to bring social unity and social reconciliation? Did Jesus come to bring unity and social reconciliation? Cultural unity and social rec reconciliation. <clears throat> By listening to almost any politician, you would think that. But the answer is resounding no. No. He came to bring the opposite of what everybody's shouting for. Jesus came to bring division. Luke 12, 51 says, Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? Who's speaking? Jesus. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me and two against me. Or two in favor of me and three against me. Father will be divided against his son. His son against his father. Mother will be divided against the daughter, and daughter against her mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, all for Christ's sake. Jesus 
did not come to bring unity and reconciliation. He came to bring truth, and truth by nature divides. Dark from light, lies from truth. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's why the moment you put Jesus on the dinner table, you know, not so, so to speak, you know, the subject of Christ, boom, the family breaks up. And Jesus said, fear not. My father is your father. And every believer who does the will of my father, he is your brother, he is your sister, those are the ones you belong to. You are not left an orphan. You have a family. And this family unites around truth, not pigmentation, not levels of melanin. No, they unite around truth. Those are your brothers and your sisters. You may be asking, well, Jacques, you know what? If I was God, I would have come up with a better idea. I would have probably had Jesus bring unity also because that's such a nice thing. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11, 19 tells you why he didn't. The Bible says, for there must be factions. What are factions? Divisions. So you can say, for there must be divisions, some trans translations say, among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There must be divisions among you so that those who are genuine might be identified and recognized. Genuine, genuine, genuine. There's a genuine, there's a genuine one, there's a genuine one, there's a genuine one. How do you know it? You know it when division occurs, when disagreement shows up. Now you see who the real is. <laughs> That's why division is there. There has to be factions. There has to be divisions. Nothing reveals fake quicker than division. Number six. What is, the, what is this incredible push toward equality? What is that? Have you ever noticed? Carl Lenz, everybody. The word, the word that everybody uses today is equality. You've got to hit on that word. Virtuous. Watch me. <laughs> Isn't that? Everybody's just got to touch that word, equality, man. Woo! It's huge. It's huge. Because the church has, in, has been injected with the idea that you're valuable and you're just so awesome. No, you've fallen. You need Christ. But when you are, you're being constantly told about how, just how awesome you are, and then you go like, well, how can you not like me? I'm supposed to be equal to you. This is a problem. What is this big push toward equality? Other than virtue signaling, I'm interested in knowing where did the prophets of old preach the message of equality? Where? Let me help you, nowhere. I'm interested in knowing where did the apostles birth of the church, Christ's disciples, where did they teach equality amongst Jews and Greeks, slave and free? Where, where did they preach that? Nowhere. I'm interested in knowing where the early church fathers in the first century, where, did, where, where ever did they talk about equality? 
and that this is now a supreme virtue within humanity. At what point did they make that an issue in the church? How did this concept suddenly take front and center in the church? I mean, you saw the guys preach on it very fervently, passionately. And he goes, because I'm on God's side. Really? <laughs> did you? I don't know if you heard that, but anyway, I did. Where did this come from? When did equality become humanity's highest aspiration and most sacred virtue? I don't know. But Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. He's not telling you to fight for equality. He's telling you to humble yourself and see others as more important and significant and valuable than you. But narcissism, especially from pulpits, has caused everybody now to like, we're equal. We're equal. See how good I am. We're equal. See how virtuous I am. What in, what in the world is this push toward equality? I don't know. It's certainly not rooted in humility. Number seven. Uh, this one I need to whisper through. Number seven, because from this question right here, the answer, well, let me say this question right here, is the reason why everything else needs to be addressed. And the question is, who is racist? Not what is racism. The question I'd like to answer is, who here is racist? Everybody's looking down on their notes. <laughs> I want to direct this question, this comment to our church, Christ Nation. The sermon is not for the almost Christian. If you're an almost Christian, it's not for you. If you're a Christian who lives with subjective truth, when you are the one determining truth, this segment is not for you. And I would really encourage you at this point to turn the channel and then come back next week. At least <clears throat> we'll be friends for at least one more week. <laughs> but... This part is not for you. Who's racist? I expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. I expect unregenerate hearts of stone to act like people with unregenerate hearts of stone. Uh, but the church of Jesus Christ is altogether different. The church is a completely different world. I mean, we are not even from here. We are in the world, but not from this world. We are of God. The world does not reflect who we are, and we should never reflect the world. Somebody asked me three months ago, long before all of this blew up, what, are our what is the church going to look like when our children grow up because they have same-age same children? I said the church they're going to deal with is going to look exactly like the world because this has been true all along. This has been true all along. The church is fashioning themselves around culture all the time, jumps on board with culture all the time, sleeps in bed with culture all the time, agrees with culture all the time, Attempt, attempts by their interviews. You check any 
celebrity pastors, by their interview, you'll see that they're constantly attempt, attempting to gain the favor of the world, to gain the love of the world. This is called adultery. You are married to Christ. You are not supposed to be courting favor and love from the world. <laughs> right? The church is supposed to be different. So, I'd like to ask our church who is racist. So let me use deductive reasoning in order to profile the true racist from, the cre from this new creature's perspective, all right? The new creature is the person who's been born again, birthed by God, made brand new, made a brand new creature in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. And this person has a perspective. And then we're asking this person, what does the racist look like from a very sober perspective? Well, in order to use this deductive reasoning, let's go to Mr. George Floyd. Like you and me, we all unanimously were shocked what we saw, no matter who it was or who it did, who did it. We were all shocked as we saw what happened. But George Floyd, like you and I, was an image bearer of God, made in the image and the likeness of God. That's who he was. This is where you and I, the new creature in Christ, made anew with a brand new heart. This is the beginning of our identification with Mr. George Floyd. And since nobody here knew him personally, that is the end of our identification with George Floyd. He is an image bearer of the Almighty God. And somebody just brutally, unjustly murdered him on camera. Shocking. What's shocking? That somebody would brutally, unjustly murder an image bearer of the Almighty God. It's fearful. The fact that George Floyd was an image bearer of God is the cause of your and my indignation as a new creature. The new creature is, in, is angered, is infuriated, and has indignation because he saw that picture. If you are angry that an image bearer of God was unjustly murdered, then your anger is righteous, your anger is holy, your anger is, listen, objective. If you want to speak out over the fact that an image bearer of God was unjustly murdered, then that is acceptable. Speak out. Shout it out. And we will shout with you in unison. But, if your indignation is not because the fact that he's an image bearer of God, but because he's a black image bearer of God, your indignation is subjective. Your indignation is unrighteous. Your indignation is not holy, but evil. I'll prove it to you. Seven days ago, on June 8th, David Dorn... A black American retired St. Louis police captain 
wonderful man apparently, was killed by Stephen Cannon, a black looter. This killing was streamed live on Facebook for the whole entire world to see, yet received almost zero news coverage, zero cultural indignation, nothing. Nothing. If your indignation is not over the fact that an image bearer of God was unjustly murdered, but you needed a certain level of melanin involved before you became enraged over that death, then you may just be in danger of being a racist at heart. You see somebody enraged over a death, and you see them hearts as cold as ice over another death, because that death there was caused by somebody similar to them. Is that not the epitome of racism? That's racist. So realize this family of God, the issue is always enmity, enmity, not ethnicity. It's sin. It's not race. Enmity is part of our fallen nature. My melanin cannot sin against your level of melanin. It is my heart that sins against you. Races do not reconcile. Hearts reconcile. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change a stony heart into a heart of flesh. Only the gospel has that power to do that. Only the gospel can accomplish what humans are attempting to achieve with race relations, anti-racism, and racial reconciliation. Only the gospel can do that. They're going to spend billions of dollars on this and not achieve anything because you cannot legislate love. You cannot... You cannot say, right now, here's the law. You, you better love me. All right. <laughs> How do you do that with a law? You don't. You can't legislate a heart. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can take out the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. And suddenly, which is the first sign of a person who was just born again, is they are grateful to God and they love God's people. It's just always the same. I hope I articulated who is racist clearly. Number eight. How do we as believers in Christ view justice? This is our last question. How do we as believers in Christ view justice? Because this is the time for justice to be done, right? How do we view justice? Our starting point for justice does not start with what is rightfully ours. And this is where everybody goes wrong. I want justice because that's rightfully mine. I want justice. You don't want what's rightfully yours. Hell is rightfully yours. Okay. We want mercy. 
So justice, from a new creature's perspective, does not start with what is rightfully theirs. It starts with what God rightfully demands from them. That's justice. It doesn't start with what is rightfully His, this new creature's. It starts with what God demands or rightfully demands from this new creature. The Bible says so. Micah 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. God has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly. But what does God require of you? To do justly. This is our point of reference for justice. You see, to do justice is not the same as to bring justice. To do justice is to do the right thing in God's eyes. Care for the poor. Help the needy. But the interesting thing is that certain political ideologies took that concept that God told us to care for the poor and help the needy. By the way, the poor that the Bible talks about 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, those that were poor, and what we view as poor today, those two terms, poor and poor, no longer the same. Now you're poor because you have minimum wage. <laughs> no, when they said poor, they meant poor. The interesting thing that certain political ideologies have pushed is the fact that now, since we care for the poor, we love and, and, and care for the needy, they, they now assumed that that became the role of their ideology, their, their governmental structure. No, no, the Bible told you to find a poor person and give to them. The Bible told you, individual Christian, who God will hold accountable, that you should be involved with that. That's why we do points of passion. That you should, if, if you know, if, if we believe that God called the government to tax us enough to give to the poor, well then, I paid my taxes. I never gave anything. I paid it. They get to give what I paid. <laughs> Therefore, I never gave. So what we do is points of passion works differently. We give to the poor. But it was never the way they view it. That's not how God designed it. I hope you're following me. To do justice is not the same as to bring justice to another. To do justice is to do the right thing in God's eyes. You care for the poor. You take care of the needy. You visit the prisoner. To bring justice is to see yourself as the judge who now has assumed the responsibility of is issuing consequences and rewards based on how you view that person's level of sin. <laughs> so you become the judge, and you decide what kind of consequence or reward the person now needs to receive. So when it comes to justice, the church is simply taking the cue from the culture today. And it's a, it's a shocking thing, to be honest with you. It's a sad thing, to be honest. They don't take the time to study. 
They don't take the time to understand God's Word. They just jump on culture, on the bandwagon, and off they go. They have completely abandoned scriptural priorities when it comes to justice, sin, and repentance. Before I talk about this, as I close, you know, we have to decide who do we listen to. Like whose, whose statement can we trust even? I mean, this has become a big problem in society. We hear so many voices. We are on Facebook and social media all day long. We have the news playing all day long. Everybody is vying for our attention. Everybody's talking to us, and we lend our ears constantly. The question is, who will you circulate? My point of reference, I like to hear this. This is my point of reference. I'll tell you what I've decided. I decided that my point of reference for truth, when I listen to others, is that the person who has decided to pay the price to spend the time necessary to be alone for long enough to study God's Word and keep on digging into God's truth and keep on digging day after day, year after year, until he can find the truth. That person that has paid a price, and then secondly, when he finds the truth, he'll say, all right, here is the truth. I want to share it with you, and I know it's going to be at my expense <laughs> because you're going to be angry. That's the person you can trust. But the person who will do what he has to, to duck and dive, Romans chapter 1 and every other passage that's not popular, but he'll jump on the bandwagon to display his virtue, virtue signaling, and just run with culture because that's the way to make the world love you. Jump in bed with the world, which is actual adultery against Christ. That person that will never tell you something heavy enough to break your relationship, he'd rather hide that truth than share it due to self-preservation. That person there, don't listen to them, right? And so we've worked very hard at, at being the person that will bring truth no matter what the results are. <laughs> because sometimes those results are expensive. And speaking of such, when last have you heard repentance preached? Except for this last week. This last week, I cannot tell you how many people I have now heard preach repentance all week long. I'm thinking, I have never heard you use that word ever. And now, that's your message. Now suddenly, everybody's preaching repentance. But here's the, here's the deception in all of that. Everybody now has to repent, not to God for their sins, not to God for their transgressions, not repenting to God for their iniquity and defi as defined by scriptures. No, they have to repent to their for their ancestors, not even for themselves, for others, not even to God, but to others. <laughs> it's like, you're like in the twilight zone. What in the world just happened? King David prayed, after the prophet came to him and said, you're guilty, committing adultery with Bathsheba, 
you killed Bathsheba's husband. You got a problem. David does what? He falls to his knees. And he says this. He says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. He doesn't go like, oh, let me run to Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, I'm so sorry, I killed your husband. <laughs> and let me run to the prophet. Like, please forgive me, prophet. Let me run to the nation. Please, Israel, forgive me. Oh, my. Please, if you guys will just forgive me, I'll be okay. No, no, no. He ran straight to God, fell down before God, and said, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. My sin was against you. Therefore, from you, God, I need forgiveness. My sin was against you. Therefore, I need forgiveness from you. Joseph did the same thing. Joseph, very good-looking young man, serving in Potiphar's house. Potiphar goes away. His wife attempts to uh, lay hold of him and sleep with him. And this is over a long period of time. And then Joseph pulls away and he says, how can I do this thing and sin against who? God. How can I do this and sin against God? Not Potiphar, God. Joseph knew if he had to sin right there and then, it would have been against God. You see, your and my sins are against God and God alone. We can only find forgiveness for our sins from God and God alone. You cannot find forgiveness elsewhere. The only possible answer to our current social dilemma is the gospel, which possesses God's power to change a heart which possesses God's power to forgive, which possesses God's power to reconcile, not man to man, but sinner to a holy God. That is our ministry. The Bible calls us to the ministry of reconciliation between man and God, not the, recon not the ministry of reconciliation between man and man. The gospel has been twisted and that's what's being pushed on your TV screen every day, all day long right now. There is no such gospel as the gospel of reconciliation and social reconciliation. There is no such gospel. There's only a gospel of Jesus Christ who reconciles man to God. I'll finish with a statement. You cannot have a social cultural solution to what is at its root a spiritual problem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you help us clear the cobwebs from our eyes, that the smoke leaves the room so that we can see clearly and soberly your truth. God, that we can grab a hold of your truth as it is our foundation upon which we stand. And just like a building in the middle of a storm gets its strength from its foundations, so we stand upon a rock and we hold fast to our root system like that tree can withstand a storm because its root system is strong enough. So God, we shoot our roots into your word and into your truth. And we hold fast, Father God, to that which you have called us and which you have, you have given us, your word, your truth, your way, your wisdom, and your life. We grab a hold of it and we submit to your word. And as we submit to your word, we know we have submitted to Christ. We embrace your word knowing that when we embrace your word, we have embraced Christ. And there's no other truth we're seeking after there is no subjective truth we will ever come up with. We're looking for the truth of the Word of God 
to build our lives upon. And around this truth, we all in the family of God will unite. And there's nothing else we will identify with. And therefore, we are stable and we're secure as a church family in Jesus' name. Amen.